Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Roy Allison. I'm reader in international relations here at the LSE, and I've been invited to chair this event uh, this evening, public lecture. And uh, first of all, I'd like to, to welcome you, welcome everybody to the LSE, to this event. So you can see a very crowded theatre, very popular. We're at the beginning of term, um, but I think also it's a reflection of interest in the, the topic and the speaker this evening. We, uh, in a moment, I'm going to invite uh, our speaker to uh, present his, his thoughts. Uh, we'll have a, a question and answer session of some 25 or 30 minutes following this event. Uh, and there will be an opportunity at the end also to uh, purchase the book around the, the topic of this talk outside. Now, the topic that Andrei Soldatov is going to address is one that has been written about frequently rather sensationally, uh, often in a rather uninformed way, and certainly quite speculatively. And what I think we may expect from this presentation, the book, is something a little different to that. It's an analysis based on um, material, that factual material, trying to uh, ascertain uh, details, uh, to confirm details. And secondly, we find most of the the writing on the Russian security services and their and the state and the relationship between the two has tended to be very much outside in. It, Westerners intrigued by this, uh, but really without much access inside, or without an understanding of the, the the wider context in which this kind of analysis should be made. And I think that again distinguishes uh, the the book uh, that Andrei Soldatov has written. This is an insider's look on this issue on the inside. Andrei Soldatov uh, is a journalist who has covered Russian security services for more than a decade. Uh, not an easy task, one might say. Uh, and he continues to do so and write, uh, particularly uh, through his uh, well-respected website, Agentura.ru, and he and his co-founder of that website, Rina uh, Borogan, have been working, uh, working, uh, presenting articles now for, as I said, for over, over 10 years. Uh, they both worked for the Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta from 2006 to 2008. I think many people here know this. Uh, this newspaper is one of those that has uh, the most penetrating analysis of events in Russia. Uh, domestic and foreign, and, and remains uh, uh, renowned, uh, although with a rather small circulation. Um, so, uh, with that background, and on the strength of uh, the book that uh, he has written, I invite uh, Andrei to offer thoughts on the topic of the new nobility, the restoration of Russia's security state, and the enduring legacy of the KGB. Thank you, Lisa. Andrei. Good evening, and thank you very much for, for coming here. And I think that, first of all, I should explain, excuse me, maybe, 
should explain the title of the book, uh, The New Nobility. And I should say that uh, this term is not our invention. It was coined in December 2000 by Nikolai Patrushev, when the FSB director, in an interview to mark the anniversary of the founding of the Czech, the Bolshevik secret police. Uh, Patrushev described the FSB's personal. He said, our best colleagues, the honor and pride of the FSB, don't do their work for the money. They all look different, but there is one very special characteristic that unites all these people, and it is very important quality. It is their sense of service. They are, if you like, our new nobility. In the 2000s, the FSB indeed became the new elite of the country. Now it enjoys expanded responsibilities and immunity from public or parliamentary oversight, and Putin made the FSB the main security service in the country. It absorbed much of the former KGB and was granted the role and the right to operate abroad and carry out special operations. At the same time, Putin gave the FSB a new and maybe risky role. As a former KGB officer, Putin viewed the FSB as the only state agency he could trust. In the 2000s, the security services became the main resource of human capital for filling positions in state apparatus and state corporations. But the FSB was hardly prepared for that challenge. I should explain briefly what was the KGB, the predecessor of the FSB. The Committee of State Security of the KGB combined, of course, dozens of different functions, covering foreign intelligence, uh, guarding national borders, protecting Soviet, bo uh, Soviet leaders, obtaining counterintelligence, silencing dissent, and monitoring all aspects of Soviet life, from the church to the national military. The KGB, <coughs> the KGB headquarters were in Moscow, but its structure was replicated in every Russian region. But being all-powerful, the KGB was restrained in one very significant way. The KGB was under strict control of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party presided over every KGB section, department, and division. The guidelines of the KGB, approved in 1959, stipulated party organizations and every communist have the right to report about shortcomings in the work of the organs of state security to the respective party organs. The idea was the Politburo, deeply traumatized by Stalin-era purges, was determined to keep the secret services in check. But when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the chief of the KGB took part in the failed coup d'etat, and it was clear for the new Russian authorities that the KGB could not be the same in the new Russian state. At the same time, Boris Yeltsin had no intention to disband it completely. His goal was to weaken the agency by splitting it into smaller independent agencies. As a result, the largest department, initially called the Ministry of Security and then the Federal Service of Counterintelligence, the FSK, and finally the Federal Security Service, FSB, would be responsible for counter-espionage and counter-terrorism. The KGB's former Foreign Intelligence Directorate, called Chief First Chief Directorate, was transformed into a new agency called the Foreign Intelligence Service, or SVR. Other divisions, such as those responsible for electronic eavesdropping, for example, became self-contained agencies. The KGB branches that had protected Soviet leaders guarded the borders of responsible for underground bunkers for the Soviet elite were turned into independent services. That changes mean that the new counterintelligence agency, and then known as FSK, was stripped off the overseas intelligence functions 
and the agency no longer protected Russian, <coughs> Russian leaders and was deprived of its secret bunkers. Even the investigative directorate was disbanded and the prisons were handed over to the Interior Ministry. In its new incarnation, the agency was proven to something resembling MI5. Meanwhile, party control over the security services disappeared, and Yeltsin's response was to encourage rivalry in the new intelligence community. Under Yeltsin, the SVR, the foreign intelligence, remained in direct competition with military intelligence. And the FSB struggled with the communication agency FAPC, because FAPC, like the FSB, was charged with keeping a close eye on the social and political situation in Russia. This meant that Yeltsin had access to a diverse set of opinions, and after reading the report from the FSB director, he could compare it with the report from the FAPC director. And in the early 1990s, the FSK was hardly considered effective or competent. Verax had finished due to the lure of big money in Russia's new capitalist economy, and those who remained faced new challenge, and first of all, of corruption that far exceeded of Soviet times. But nevertheless, in 1995, the FSK was renamed the FSB, replacing Kontrasvetka counterintelligence with much wider term, bezopasnost security. By then, Yeltsin already restored the investigative directorate of the Secret Service, and prisons, including famously Fortova, were returned to the Secret Service. It was the first sign of revival of the Secret Service, and you see, it was well before Putin became a prominent figure. But when Putin was elected Russian president in 2000, rumors began to circulate that the Kremlin was preparing to recombine all the parts of the former KGB into one big agency. In fact, only in March 2003, a big bureaucratic reorganization followed. Putin signed a decree that merged the bodyguards into the FSB and divided the old rival, the communication agency FAPC, between the FSB and the Federal Protective Service. At the same time, he turned the tax police into a state anti-drug agency to be headed by Viktor Cherkesov, a former KGB officer and one of the closest Putin's friends. The FSB even got its own aviation department. And the agency's advancement did not always come through absorption. For example, when it could not absorb the SVR, it created its own department for governing foreign, uh, <coughs> foreign intelligence. And in this way, the FSB entered the field previously dominated by the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, and military intelligence. The FSB also came out with the upper hand over the Interior Ministry. FSB officers were placed in key posts in the ministry, and late in 2003, Putin appointed Rashid Nurgaliev, an FSB general, as Interior Minister. So the FSB was given a free hand by the Kremlin, so let's look how the FSB used this opportunity. And of course, the largest single challenge facing the FSB in Russia was the way for terrorist attacks. You know that by the end of the 1990s, terrorist attacks were carried out not only in Chechnya but in Moscow. But historically, the KGB was, had very little experience dealing with the terrorists because of the almost complete absence of terrorist attack on Soviet soil. For example, in the 1980s, only six terrorist attacks occurred in the Soviet Union, and all of them were plain hijackings by individuals who tried to escape the country. The new decade of terrorism began in 1991, when Shamil Basayev tried to hijack a plane. And after that, terrorists captured planes, helicopters, buses, and even a kindergarten. The FSB had to change their structure and methods to deal with the new reality. And the first problem for them was to find people to create new counterterrorism section. 
historically suspicious of ethnic North Caucasian, the FSB had largely failed to recruit Chechens. But uh, eager to add fresh blood to its desk office staff, it turned to the Interior Ministry, whose offices were regarded as more ruthless, given their history of fighting Chechen and other ethnic organized crime groups in Moscow. By the way, one of his officers was Alexander Litvinenko. And these experiences was considered to be helpful since the FSB believed then when the Chechen warlords obtained financing and weapons from Chechen organized crime book, uh, groups based in Moscow. As a result, by the end of 1990s, the Russian secret services, and not only the FSB, had adopted harsh methods to deal with terrorism. The emphasis was on using roughless, brutal, extrajudicial operations that, for fear of leaks, were to be conducted by ultra-secret and out-of-control special units. This tactic was to be expanded in Chechnya in when the Second Chechen War started. But you know that these methods failed to prevent the terrorist attacks in the early 2000s. The Nord-Dost hostage crisis in 2002 was maybe the biggest challenge for the Putin era FSB. I should remind you that on October 23, 2002, the group of Chechens took over 900 hostages in the theater on Dubrovka in Moscow, and they demanded withdrawal of Russian troops from Chechnya. Three days later, on October 26, the FSB stormed the theater and the special gas was used. And as you know, as a result, 130 hostages died, and only five of them at hands of terrorists. The FSB response to that tragedy was to de declare that the storming was a victory against terrorism. The generals who planned the operation were rewarded, and the FSB director Patrushev was given Russia's highest award, the hero of the Russian Federation. And the authorities in the Kremlin justified this decision by saying that the secret services and first of all FSB were so weakened during the 1990s that now they needed support and not criticism. And those who questioned the operation were punished. Some of media were warned by the media ministry, and the broadcast of some TV channels were temporarily halted. I, with my co-author, were interrogated and a few times uh, almost accused of disclosing some state secrets because of our reportage, and there was no parliamentary investigation. And securing the Kremlin's support and silencing media, the FSB turned to public opinion directly. The FSB helped to produce the blockbuster, future blockbuster, uh, called Lichny Nomer, or Countdown in English. The movie was a fictionalized account of two actual terrorist attacks of 1999 Moscow apartment bombings and Nordost hostage crisis. But in case of Nordost hostage crisis, the producers just replaced the theater with the circus. And in the film, the hero was obviously the FSB officer. And the mastermind of terrorist attacks was an oligarch named Pokrovsky, lived in exile in London. And the producer of the film made no secret that they were advised by uh, Vladimir Anisimov, who then was uh, deputy director of the FSB, and that the project was filmed with the FSB's support. They proudly said that you can see in the, in the movie so many tanks, helicopters, and we tried to, uh, to create something uh, resembling Black Hawk Down. Dealing with, uh, and the film was, to be frank, a great success in Russia. But dealing with militants in the North Caucasus, the FSB needed a free hand with a minimum of responsibilities. And they succeeded in this case. The counter-terrorism operation in Chechnya lasted 10 years. It began in 1999 and was ended in April 2009. But the FSB, the main counter-terrorism body in Russia, was in charge for only 31 months. Since January 2001, 
to July 2003, and when the responsibility and control were handed over to the Interior Ministry. That allowed the FSB to use the shoot-and-kill policy without responsibility for the crisis. In 2006, the new law on preventing terrorism was adopted, and the very definition of terrorism was changed. The new policy put a strong emphasis on terrorism as something aimed at the state, while the early policy had defined it as something directed at civilians. And the new law stipulated that terrorism is an ideology of violence and practice of influence on decision-making by bodies of the government, institutions of local government, or international organizations, by means of intimidation of the population. Of course, according to this logic, the Nordos hostage crisis did not threaten the Kremlin's position, and FSB generals not only avoided punishment, but were rewarded. And to be frank, there was only one example uh, when the FSB generals were punished. In June 2004, militants led by Basayev raided Ingushetia, and for a brief period, the entire region fell into the hands of Basayev's militants. This time, Putin was quick to make tough decisions. A number of generals of the FSB Interior Ministry were fired, and not only in the region, but in the central apparatus of the FSB. But of course, the Beslan tragedy of 2004, the bombings of uh, train Nevsky Express in 2007 and 2009, or suicide bombings in Moscow in 2010, did not pose a threat to political stability, and nobody in secret services was punished. As its power has increased, the FSB has reduced the space available for open discussion of politics and public life, and the very political culture was changed. It started in May 1999, when Putin was the director of the FSB and the head of the Security Council. One day, Putin went to the offices of Komsomolskaya Pravda, a very popular mass circulation paper, to give an interview. And in this interview, instead of an internal threat, Putin pointed to foreign espionage as the Russia's biggest enemy. He declared, Unfortunately, foreign intelligence services, besides diplomatic cover, are very active in using and they work various ecological and civil society organizations, the business and charity foundations. That is why these structures, however pressed we are from the media and the public, will be always under our steadfast attention and the interest of the state demanded. And the FSB got the signal. In the years to come, all the institutions Putin had named would become the targets of such investigations. Foreign human rights organizations and charity organizations were targeted already in 2000. In August, the FSB accused Howard Trust, the British Mind Clearing Charity, not only of governing intelligence in Chechnya, but of teaching Chechens rebel technique to create explosives. In 2006, prominent Russian human rights organizations, including Moscow Helsinki Group, were accused of accepting money from British intelligence. Late of the same year, Putin accused the political opposition of behaving like jackals near foreign embassies. Scientists were put in a special category. During the Cold War, most Soviet science research centers' contacts with foreign organizations were highly restricted. But in the 1990s, they were encouraged to look for overseas financing on their own. But in the 2000s, the FSB changed the rules of the game and claimed that many state secrets had been leaked as a result of democratic reforms, and they insisted that the regime of secrecy should be arrested. As a result, in 2004, Valentin Danilov, a physicist in Krasnoyarsk State Technical University, was sentenced to 14 years in prison because of his center's contacts with the Chinese. One was a term for journalists. In May 2002, Nikolai Volobuyev, when the chief of the FSB's counterintelligence department, said that 31 foreign journalists had had their press passes revoked 
because we were conducting illegal journalist activity. Since then, this method has become common practice. And between 2000 and 2007, more than 40 journalists were refused to enter to Russia. The FSB also resurrected the political surveillance unit of the KGB, and this happened uh, already in 1998. And in the interview at TIA, its chief, Gennady Zotov, claimed that the Russian state has always devoted special attention to the protection of the country from internal sedition, for internal sedition has always been more terrible for Russia than any military invasion. And to date, with the most honest and open comment made by FSB official on its motives to carry out political investigations. In 2008, we discovered that the Moscow Regional Directorate of the FSB was involved in penetrating the United Civil Front, a small liberal political group led by Gary Kasparov, a chess champion. And the revelation came in the February 2008 when a Russian citizen named Alexander Novikov fled to Denmark and applied for political asylum. In Copenhagen, he told me and journalists of the Danish Broadcasting Corporation that he was recruited by the FSB in 2006 to penetrate the United Civil Front. We checked his information and it turned out that he was an active member of United Civil Front's Moscow branch. And Novikov insisted that he had played an important role in helping the FSB disrupt Kasparov's political activities. For example, by informing the FSB about where Kasparov planned to hold public meetings to obtain signatures to become a candidate in the 2008 presidential election. And true, in December 2007, the Kasparov group was blocked without explanation from renting a theater hall in Moscow. We published this information, and, it was, and this information was never denied by the FSB. The election was, of course, won by Dmitry Medvedev. But despite this handover of power, the Kremlin's efforts to maintain stability was challenged by the economic crisis. In response, the Kremlin has intensified its efforts to control the opposition. In September 2008, Medvedev has changed the structure of the Interior Ministry, disbanding the department dedicated to fight organized crime and terrorism, and he created a new department charged with countering extremism. And overnight, thousands of experienced police officers accustomed to deal with bandits and terrorists were redirected to hunt down new enemies, the called extremists. And in April 2009, FSB General Alexei Sedov, who was and he is the chief of the Directorate of, for Protection of the Constitution, explaining the reasons and who are these new extremists. He told in an open meeting, we need to consider the consequences of the world financial crisis as a possible catalyst for terrorist activity and increasing extremist manifestations, including violent forms of resistance carried out by all kinds of dissenters, unauthorized opposition, youth, and students. In other words, any expressions of public discontent fell under the purview of the security services and could be combated accordingly. At the same time, the Interior Ministry has begun to develop a database of potential extremists, a huge storehouse of information. And this system should be completed in November this year and will allow the Interior Ministry, the FSB, and the Federal Protective Service to share information. And very as the Soviet police state tried to control every citizen in the country, the new and more technically sophisticated Russian system is far more selective. Now, it targets only those individuals who have political ambitions or strong anti-government views. And changing the political culture, the FSB personnel as the new elite secured more privileged status for themselves. 
And the days of the KGB, high-ranking uh, officers, the Sheffield and official Black Volgas and qualified for country homes on the elite, even when Rublevka wrote. But the recipients of these privileges well, well understood that they enjoyed them only temporarily, because the real owner of the mansions and the cars was the KGB itself. In the years after the Soviet collapse, the FSB officers developed a taste for luxury. In 2006, Viktor Alexnitz, a hardline communist who was elected to the State Duma from a district at Dinsova, which includes the Rublovka area, discovered that the state had doled out 99 acres of land in this area to private citizens. And these lands were divided into 90 allotments, 38 of them taken from the funds of the FSB. And this land was given to former current high-ranking FSB officials who were named in documents just as servicemen who had served more than 15 years. And we published this story in Nova Gazeta, and the reaction was remarkable. The FSB said that it was legal, but Alexis was not allowed to take part in the next elections. And when Putin came to power, the Secret Services officers were appointed to key positions in state apparatus and state-controlled corporations. And Putin hoped, perhaps, that opening the doors of the most powerful institutions, the security agents would allow them to form a vanguard of stability and order. But once they had tasted the benefits, the officers began to struggle among themselves. In an open letter published in Kommersant in October 2007, Viktor Cherkesov, the old friend of, of uh, Vladimir Putin and then the head of Russia's anti-drug agency, claimed that many of the best and brightest in the ranks of the KGB went on to make their own fortunes. He declared, today, experts and journalists started to talk about the war of groups inside secret services. And in this war, there can be no winners. The case is destroying itself from within when warriors become traders. If we are talking about foreign policy, the FSB was given a very special role to operate on the territory of the former Soviet Union and mostly to prevent revolutions. The special department was created inside the FSB to deal with the former Soviet republics and the result was firstly showed in May 2005 when pa Nikolai Patrushev claimed openly before the State Duma that the FSB have helped unmask a plot against the regime of Lukashenko. I think it would be interesting to see his reaction today. And beginning the mid... <coughs> and the FSB also has desperately tried to win the support of central Russian governments. Moscow views the presence of U.S. and NATO forces in the region as a continuation of the 19th century's great game. With the FSB taking the lead, the Kremlin has deliberately turned Russia into a hunting ground for the secret services of the most authoritarian regimes in Central Asia. Beginning in the mid-1990s, Russia had become a safe haven for the political opponents of Central Asian dictators. But in 2004, under the auspices of the Shanghai Corporation Organization, an international group founded in 2001 by China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, Russia led the call for the hunt for separatists and political opponents who posed a threat to the regimes of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization member states. But it turned out that other countries have benefited more from this arrangement than the Russia. Although Russia has extradited thousands of people accused of extremism or terrorism to Central Asian states since 2004, it has not received anyone on its own wanted list. Of course, the open and maybe one of the most interesting questions is the question of ideology of the FSB. And true that the FSB and the Russian Orthodox Church have been moving close in recent years. In December 2002, the Cathedral of St. Sophia was reopened just off Lubyanka Square, a block away from the FSB headquarters. 
And quite remarkable that Patriarch himself blessed the opening of the cathedral in a ceremony attended by then FSB chief Patrushev. And it's quite strange because uh, you know that the Russian Orthodox Church was a target of the KGB and in Soviet times. But at the same time, the Russian Orthodox Church had always been very closely connected with the state. And the Tsar was the head of the church. And Russia's brand of orthodoxy is based on the notion that Moscow is the third Rome after Rome and Constantinople, and on belief in Russian uniqueness. And being unique, today's Russia sees itself as surrounded by, by numerous enemies, where, <clears throat> and these enemies must be combated by the FSB. And these enemies might be sometime Western intelligence services, or might be Catholic priests seeking to undermine the Russian Orthodox Church influence. And in 2002, five Catholic priests were expelled from Russia by the FSB, and some of them were accused of espionage. At the same time, the FSB turned Yuri Andropov, the longest chief of the KGB and later the leader of the Soviet Union in the early 1980s, into services official hero. On December 20th, 1999, Putin attended the ceremony, reinstalling the Andropov plaque on the headquarters of the FSB. And generals loved to the view that if one drop of still alive, Russia would have followed China's path of reform. But despite that, the FSB never tried to change economic rules in Russia. We have now the same ruling class that we had in the 1990s, the same oligarchs, sometimes exactly the same names, closely connected with the state, with some exceptions like Khodorkovsky. And I tried to show you that the process of strengthening the FSB began already in the mid-1990s, when the ruling elite understood that they were interested in a more authoritarian model. And this approach was only strengthened after the financial crisis of 1998 and NATO bombing in Serbia in 1999, when the Russian population, and especially the middle class, became disillusioned with the Western capitalist model and Western democracy. Fifteen years on, I think it's possible to draw some conclusions about Russia's security and how well it has been served by its security apparatus. And today we might say that the FSB was hardly effective. The FSB invested energy in hunting down foreign spies, but the methods it used raised questions about whether this threat was real. The FSB targeted non-government organizations out of fear that such groups might inspire a popular revo revolution against the Kremlin. And this was a clear miscalculation because these organizations were too small to be significant threats. The FSB meddled in politics, perhaps to demonstrate their loyalty to the Kremlin, but they clearly misjudged the threat of any opposition to the popular president. Much more important, the FSB has miscalculated the nature of the enemy in the war against terrorism. Faced with guerrilla warfare, the security services tried to eliminate a generation of Chechen warlords, both within the country and abroad. But when these leaders were killed, new ones took their place. And over and over again, the FSB blamed terrorist attacks on outsiders, such as foreign intelligence services, when Al-Qaeda, when again foreign intelligence services. But the focus on external enemies has been misplaced. Arabs, true, were present in Chechnya and they are still present there, but they were always subordinate to Chechens. Putin clearly hoped that the large presence of former FSB and KGB officers would prove a vanguard of stability and order for his regime. But in fact, they failed to create a new elite capable of ruling the country. They are not a junta united by common perspective on Russia's present and future. Their mindset had been shaped by Soviet insider's history and the excessively suspicious and world-looking inclination mentality. And since security agents now are everywhere in the state, it also undermines the effectiveness of state governance as a whole. Thank you.
Okay, we're mo we're moving now to the question and answer session. Uh, there are some roving microphones uh, for those who wish to put a question, and I'd ask you to use those. Um, and I would also remind those who wish to put a question to put a question rather than to deliver a statement, so that we can uh, get as many questions in, responses in, in the time we have available. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, we'll, let's start with the gentleman over here. Hello. Uh, so what do you think of uh, the Litvinenko thesis that the bombs of you know, Moscow, September 99, were you know, planted by, and Volgodovsk were in fact planted by the uh, FSB? The question is about Litvinenko. Well, uh, as far as, uh, as, as we know, according to British investigation, Polonia was clearly originated in Russia, and it's, it's clear that it's quite impossible to transfer this kind of material from Russia to the United Kingdom without help of Russian officials. But what we try to show in our book, uh, that in such criminal cases, uh, it's very difficult to understand these Russian officials involved. They were hired as mercenaries to do these things, or they were ordered by their leadership. For example, in the case of Anna Politkovskaya, of your kidding, we uh, you know that uh, there is an FSB official, Lieutenant Colonel Pavel Dragosov, and he was suspected to provide information about her whereabouts to killers. But the problem was that, uh, as we checked independently, and as it was investigated by Norway Gazette above and by investigative committee of Russia, he was hired as mercenary to provide this information and not order it. So in case of, Litvin of Litvinenko, it's the same problem. We just can't understand these particular officials who helped to transfer this material or who might be uh, involved in, in the killing. They were hired, ordered, if they were ordered by whom, and in which level, in the Kremlin, in the, in the security services. And this is an open question for me. And another open question is the question of motive. I just can't understand, and I never heard a uh, question about why he was killed and in 2006, but not, for example, in 2002 or 2000, when he fled to, to the United Kingdom. And without answer to these questions, we thought that we tried to base our book only on facts that we can confirm. That's why we decided not to put speculations in the book. Right. Um, could those putting a question please identify themselves and where they come from if there's affiliation? Uh, so, um, lady in the, in the centre. Hi, thank you for the presentation. I've got a question uh, with regards to the new initiative. So, sorry, uh, and you are? Uh, sorry, Juliana, um, just a guest from South Bank University. Um, I've got a question uh, with regards to the new initiative Medvedev introduced, investigating agency, uh, which has been kind of launched quite recently on the side with the FSB and other organizations, uh, which, as I understand, directly reporting to the government, Russian government. Uh, can you maybe expand on that? Do you know any information on why it's been um, set up and any sort of relation to your presentation? Excuse me, can you? I don't uh, quite understand. Recently in the press, there was um, mentioned that Medvedev introduced and launched a new investigating agency. Ah, yes, yeah. yeah. So the problem is that uh, Medvedev actually he told about two stages of his reform, and I think only the second stage might touch as FSB activity. The problem is that firstly he said that we need to uh, separate the investigative committee from uh, from the general prosecution office, and that actually was done. 
The problem is that uh, he said that might be the next stage would be that the all investigative directorates of all security services would be united under the umbrella of this investigative committee. And I think this move, of course, it would be a big threat to, to the FSB because they might be deprived of their investigative facilities. But the problem is that we know nothing about this second stage. So I think when it, it, it would happen, so we can talk about some about, about any any moves, any uh, change of attitudes of the of Medvedev to 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 the FSB. But now we just see some bureaucratic struggle between uh, investigative committee and general prosecution office, and that's all. Hi, my name is Yulia. I'm working now in the UK government, but I'm a citizen of Russia. I have two questions. I completely agree about corruptions and problem with power structures, but you referred several times that someone had to be persecuted for terrorist attacks in Russia. I don't see such experience. It's a global problem, and for terrorist attacks on the is, 11th of September... Is there a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why do you think that someone in Russian structures had to be persecuted? No one was persecuted for 11th of September attack. No one was persecuted in the UK government for any attacks, so why would it have take place in Russian government? My second, not question, but comment, which will finish uh, this uh, comment, is a... Very yeah. briefly, this... Yeah. Uh, I Central Asia. I was, yeah. I was born in Uzbekistan. Your league is one of the parties which is opposition party to President Karimov. It was expelled from Uzbekistan. At the moment, they are fighting in, in Pakistan. It's clearly the case that if they would stay in Uzbekistan and would come to party, it would be a big problem. Sure. Personally, I'm sure that it's good for Uzbekistan not to have this party within its premises. Okay. Why do you think that it's such a bad idea for these countries to be extremely careful being on the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan? Okay, thank you. I think it's uh, for me because I'm, I've been covering Russian secret services, not United States secret services. So my answer is that um, the criticism of security services, uh, we need this, thing, this kind of things to understand what was done wrong. For example, in case of, uh, of Nodos siege, not only people who, for example, uh, organized the storming of the theater, and maybe these people were very brave, uh, they were awarded, but the guy who was responsible for, he, he, who was in charge of the Moscow department, the FSB, so he, his direct responsibility prevent terrorist attacks in Moscow. And he failed, and he was rewarded for this thing. I think it's quite strange. Another problem is that I specifically mentioned that there was no parliamentary investigation during, uh, after, after the Nordos uh, crisis. And you know, it's parliamentary, a parliamentary investigation might help to, to fix some problems, some mistakes in structural organization uh, of security services of how they effective to respond to this, uh, to this threat. So in this case, I think this kind of criticism uh, is just, just a necessary thing. And if you're talking about Uzbekistan, I think that, uh, well, it's a very interesting question because uh, the, the main the, the country that benefited most uh, after this, uh, after, after the, uh, when uh, this Shanghai Cooperation Organization was established and a new uh, system, so-called a new structure called RATS, a regional anti-terrorist structure was created, uh, well, it was Uzbekistan. And the problem is that if you're talking about uh, big political opponents. The, the problem is that uh, you're absolutely right that uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, they tend to now to settle in, uh, in, the, in the border of uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. But there is another people, for example, Hizbut Tahrir Party, and they pose no threat 
to uh, non militant threat, they never try to use uh, militant methods to 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 combat uh, regime of of Karimov. But the problem is that they they were put in the same list, and now they are hunted down in Russia. Sometimes they sometimes they just quietly disappeared in territory of Russia, and they just uh, and then we can find them in the prisons of Uzbekistan. And well, I think I don't think that's a very uh, fair system. Okay, thank you. Question uh, over here, gentleman in white. Yes. Hello. I'd like to ask a question about the broader role of the security services, not only in the, um, the present uh, Russian Federation, but also in the Soviet Union itself. Because it seems to me that the, the, the Cheka and its successor organizations played a very important role, really from the 1930s onwards, as a source of expertise and knowledge and capability for the Soviet Union, and at several moments aspired actually to the leadership of the Soviet Union. Beria did in 1953, and of course Andropov became uh, leader of the Soviet Union. So there has been a long-term aspiration on the part of uh, uh, you know, the, the organs, if you like, to adopt a leading role. Now my question is, how far has Putin been using his colleagues in the security services as a unique source of expertise and human capital in the state, comparable, I would suggest, to the role of the ANR and the ANARCHS in uh, the rebuilding of France in the Fourth and Fifth Republic. So I, I would ask you about the broader political role of uh, Czechists, if you like, in modernizing and reviving Russian power. Mm -hmm. okay. And you, you are, so you're from? Well, Michael Williams from the University of Hartford. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, to be frank, uh, as the first people who, who like to talk about uh, the KGB as a source of expertise for Soviet leaders are the people from the KGB. But in true, if you look at the history of the KGB, you can see that, for example, Andropov, he was not a trained KGB agent. He was a parachik. He was a person from the, from the Politburo who was sent by Politburo to oversight the, the KGB. And he just used this source of power to, 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 to obtain more important position. And uh, if you look at uh, so-called analysis departments in the, F in the KGB, I can say that the first analytical department inside the KGB was created only in 1989, just before the Soviet Union collapsed. And Andropov was always uh, surrounded by people like Bovin, so it was the people clearly not connected with the KGB, and they were so-called advisors to him about what to do with the KGB, and the KGB was deprived of function to prepare the analysis. They just provided information for analytical reports uh, complied uh, and prepared by someone else, because the Politburo was so afraid that they might be uh, fell under control of the of the of the of the modern successors of the NKVD, but they decided to, to keep this distance. And uh, uh, Putin clearly uh, he 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 destroyed this distance between him and the FSB because now we have a huge analytical department, the FSB, and they, in one of the sections of his department, they have the task to prepare the special papers to to the president directly. But in fact, I don't feel uh, that the the FSB now they have the ability to formulate the point of view of uh, of Medvedev, for example. 
Uh, sometimes they might be uh, influential. For example, if we are talking about alternative revolutions, uh, but if we are talking specifically about economics, and first of all about all these old contracts and how to deal with Poland today, uh, or how to deal with the West, I don't think they are so influential. I think it's, it was, a, to be frank, a big miscalculation that we all, Russian journalists and experts, fought in, uh, in the early 2000s. We all, there was big, 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 uh, a very popular conspiracy theory that the KGB just uh, planted uh, that, 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 uh, there was a big conspiracy to place Putin to be a new Russian leader just to, gain, to, to obtain power. In fact, the FSB never gets the power. They uh, were given the power. Okay, good evening. Um, basically, Russia's centralized police state, has it ever seriously been challenged? Challenged. Um, challenged to what? Um, like, has it, yeah, just a little bit. Um, like, has the general public ever tried to do anything about it, or has it ever nearly been dismantled, or anything close to, yeah, a rebellion, or anything like that? Maybe you want to comment on that, the characterization of, of, of Russia as a police state. As a, with uh, can, you, can, can, can you explain me again this question? Well, there's some, I mean, are, there, are there challenges, uh, alternative challenges, which uh, might uh, change Russia from being as, as the, the lady characterizes? You might want to challenge the, oh, okay. the initial assumptions. But so I think, I think, to be frank, that, uh, if you are talking about what's happened inside the country, the population mostly are quite happy with the system that we have now. So I don't think that we can, that there might be any popular opposition movement that we can ask for disbanding of the FSB. It never happened even in 1991. So why it might be happening today? Today, population mostly, they, because uh, this police state is very selective, so only a few people are targeted. And this a list of troublemakers, so students, youth organizations, human rights organizations, but not, for example, uh, businessmen, mostly. If businessmen targeted, they are targeted because other businessmen uh, bribe the security services to, to, to do this uh, duty work, but not because they are targeted for, 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 for the state. So that's why I don't think it might be changed internally from, from, from inside. Might be something might happen, for example, with oil prices or general situation around the country might, might be changed. That might be the big challenge for, 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 uh, for the status quo. Not, but I don't expect that something might happen because it might be born inside the country. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, sir. Hi, um, I'm Joe. I was a student here a couple of years ago. I've got two questions. First is, um, obviously you've written the book. Uh, I don't know if it's appeared in Russian, but obviously it's out in English. Um, have you had any comeback from your having written the book? I mean, ha has there been any pressure on you? Have you felt any pressure? And the second is a, a question related to something that's happening right now which is um, we've just seen on Sunday this statement by Medvedev about uh, developments in Belarus and um, the, saying essentially he doesn't think very much of Lukashenko. Um, how do you see that developing over the next couple of weeks and months up to the elections in December? Well, about, uh, well we... Um, yeah, so uh, first question. Uh, because we, we have been covering the security services for, for, for 10 years, most, almost, yeah, for 10 years uh, since 1999. 
Well, so there were some, of course, we've, uh, there were some problems we've interrogated a few times about the FSB, first time in 2002, and the last time I think it was in 2008. And, um, well, because according to Russian law, journalists cannot be accused of disclosing state secrets, so uh, first it looked like it's just a question of uh, that you waste your time sitting in, uh, in one of the offices in the Fortwell prison. But the problem is that now they developed new tactics, so they, we can say that you as journalists, you created a criminal group that you involved people with access to state secret, you bribed him to give you this information, you published it, you get some money back, you paid this guy. So there's a criminal group led by journalists with some economic, economic motive, so you might be accused as a leader of this group. So that's why sometimes it might be very uh, quite dangerous for you. You should be very cautious when you uh, when, to, when, when you uh, when you go to interrogation, uh, and that's that's the problem. No, uh, but the problem is that uh, it's not so straightforward. It's not because of pressure of the FSB that they oversight all this activity. The problem is that we have a big decline of investigative journalism in Russia, and it's a it, it's not a problem of uh, of journalists. It's a problem of population that is not interested in such things in Russia. We have a book published in Russia in 2004, but today it looks like there is no interest to this. To publish this, uh, such kind of book in, in Russia, and uh, we see no interest from, uh, from from Russian publishers. And only now, when the book was published in English, we, we started some talks with some with one of uh, Russian publishers to, to have this book in, in, in Russian. And that, that's the problem. If you are talking about Belarus, I think it would be a big challenge for the FSB because true. Uh, the Belarusian KGB and FSB they always were in very good relations. Even uh, uh, they never used diplomatic uh, contacts. They, uh, they always they, they keep uh, contacts between the uh, middle level of, uh, of the security services. Uh, because Russians, for example, they were never expelled from security apparatus of, of the Belarus and of Belarus, and so it's, it's always uh, so so friendly for the, for the FSB. When, for example, one guy from the Foreign Intelligence Service uh, 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 who, who was born in Minsk just decided to be, he was retired, the FSB, uh, not the FSB, the foreign intelligence just decided to send him to Belarus because it would, to, to Russian embassy because it would be very comfortable to him. So you see that they, uh, they enjoy very good relations, specifically security services. So I don't know, to be frank, how they now can, can deal with uh, the Belarusian uh, colleagues. Question right in the corner. Hello, my name is Tarek York. I'm an investigator with the Office of Fair Trading. Uh, my question is, have you seen, uh, is there a, a, a clear link between the FSB and private enterprise, uh, in particular the oligarchs, but also other businesses and industries in the same way that perhaps you'd see between other secret services such as the British SIS and more openly the American CIA? And if there is that, to what extent does it include sort of a two-way trade of information? Uh, does it include the FSB supporting operations clandestinely or more openly, um, whether it's stealing intellectual property, destabilizing competitors, or the like? Uh, uh, very, 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 very close relationship between uh, the FSB and business because there's a special practice adopted by, uh, to be frank, not by, by the FSB, but even by the KGB, to have so-called officers of attached reserve or, or of, the, of, of active reserve. Or now they are just called attached officers. So we have 
officers of the FSB attached to banks, state corporations, and all these kind of things. And they were sent to these banks and to corporations to oversight to, to see the possible threat to national security of leaking some information, or maybe they can, maybe there was some, some other task. But the problem is now that they became extremely loyal, not to the FSB, but to the structures they were sent and they were attached. Because salaries in these banks, and they usually they have two salaries, one in the FSB and another in banks, and sometimes they, uh, they were sent undercover, sometimes openly, and the problem for them is that now they, they, they get more money uh, from, from, from their banks than from, from the FSB, and uh, now there is a trend inside the FSB to just to forget about the, the salary inside the FSB because uh, salary in the bank might be better and, 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 uh, and bigger. And we see uh, what this strange trend that the security services started to be used by big corporations were in a strange way admitted even by Vladimir Putin. In 2007, Putin appointed new chief of, the, of foreign intelligence services, we are Mikhail Fratkov, former prime minister of Russia, and he said that now the new task and big task for foreign intelligence would be to protect the interest of Russian corporations abroad. And inside the country, you know, you, you see some examples when, for example, BP was targeted or Norwegian Telecom was targeted, and in this case, FSB was just used to obtain uh, some 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 advantages for, uh, for for Russian corporations. Okay, uh, lady in the tall to middle um, back there with, with dark hair, glasses. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hi. Thanks very much for your lecture. I just have a question about. Um, uh, and you, you are. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm Aliona, and I'm studying at LSE. Right. So, um, I have a question regarding the FSB's possible involvement in the construction of the Sochi Olympics and what you, whether, what, whether you can comment on that, what you think about that. Uh, I have to say that for Medvedev, he's not so obsessed with the FSB as Putin used to be. That's why he tried to use not only the FSB but other security services uh, to, uh, to create more safe regime in, in the area of Sochi. For example, uh, the new brigade of internal troops uh, uh, was, uh, was established in, in Sochi, and, uh, and the new brigade, not the new, but uh, uh, when it was decided to cut some, uh, some, some brigades and the minister of the, some brigades of Spetsnaz in, in the Ministry of Defense, it was decided that the brigade, uh, which is stationed in, in Sochi, should be uh, kept untouched. And the same thing for, for the FSB. The, for example, now we have the special regional Spetsnaz uh, section uh, of the FSB cent uh, special purpose center stationed in the Sochi. So, so it looks like FSB just, uh, that Medvedev just used all methods, all structures available to secure this area. And for him, the FSB is not a kind of, not so important because he's not so, 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 so connected with uh, this structure. I, I, I don't neglect the balcony. There's a, there's a question up here. Perhaps if there are no mics, you could just um, speak yeah. loudly. Um, I'm just um, a graduate of the European Institute here, and I wanted to ask you um, how long do you think it will take until the security services will be after you will show? And do you think this state will be similar to Michael Well, I think that uh, there is a big miscalculation to think that Lushkov really 
post any threat to uh, to regime of Medvedev. Khodorkovsky uh, was a big challenge for 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 Putin, of course. And at that, and to be frank, uh, by 2003, nobody knows who would be winner in this big big game between between Putin and Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky had real chances, but you remember that Lushkov, when he tried to to become candidate to, in presidential elections, when he was said, no, it would be it, it would be better not to, to to take part in these things. He just complied and said, okay, you can forget about my ambitions. So I don't think really that he, yes, he, 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 he ruled Moscow for 18 years, but I don't think it makes him um, independent political prominent figure to, to challenge uh, the political regime in, 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 in the Kremlin. Thank you. There's a question right at the far, by the wall. Yes. Uh, yeah, hi, uh, Jack at Greenwich. Um, I was just interested, like, following on that point about Lushkov, how is the FSB affected by, say, for example, not only like the change in Moscow, but the change sort of recently with like uh, long-standing regional governors being changed sort of across Russia, sort of in terms of between like the relationship between them and sort of like the local sort of FSB organs. Uh, you, know, you know that uh, the, the, that uh, Putin decided to to just to, uh, to forget about elections uh, in, in regions just after the Slan attack in 2004. So I think in this case we can say that there are some connections between the FSB and the decision not to have these elections. And uh, I think that it was clearly FSB influence that the political culture and became more secretive and now uh, we have no ability to ask Medvedev about the reasons why uh, Lushkov was, uh, was, was sucked. And, but I don't think that there are some strong and straightforward relations with, uh, between, between the FSB and this, uh, and this decision. Okay, there's an, another question by the, yes, by the wall. Yes, it is. Um, my name is Janusz Jermann. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, I was wondering um, what role you, would you give, uh, uh, or what, what role of the secret services would you see in the in the upcoming presidential elections? Because you mentioned like the, that there's a difference between Putin and, and Medvedev, and now facing maybe that they both will run for for presidency. Uh, so, what would you make of that? As far as we can see, uh, because Medvedev is not obsessed, so obsessed with the FSB, he decided to use not the FSB but mostly the Interior Ministry to secure uh, uh, the, the stability of uh, the politi of political regime. So I think uh, that we might expect that the Interior Ministry would be more active than the FSB. FSB, only, uh, as you know, only this summer FSB decided to to show the, the, the activity of to to to, present, to propose. Medvedev, uh, with new law on preventive measures, but in fact, the Interior Ministry obtained the same uh, the same powers uh, two years ago. So they now they are more numerous than uh, than the FSB personnel. They have more possibility to uh, to to monitor the activity of uh, possible troublemakers. So I think uh, what, that for for Medvedev, and another problem is that for Medvedev, technical technical system of, uh, of surveillance, all these technical methods, of, for example, cameras in, uh, in, um, in trains, uh, system databases, data they are more important than for, 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 for Putin. It looks like now the Kremlin invested a huge amount of money to create this, this kind of system, and mostly under control of the Interior Ministry.
gentleman in purple there. Hi, my name is David. I'm a student here at uh, International Political Economy. And uh, the gentleman actually asked my question, but I have something to add. Uh, if you're saying that Putin and Medvedev are uh, supported by different groups of, of uh, people in Russia, do you think if there is a conflict in it? And will this conflict, conflict, if there is some, exceed approaching to the elections? Thanks. Well, because uh, <laughs> the political culture of, of, of Russia is so Secretive, we in fact uh, we don't know what really hap happening between them. And now I, I had some meeting with uh, very high officials uh, in, in in Moscow, and they started to talk to me about. Well, in one meeting we saw that Putin approached Medvedev, and they had a talk for 10 minutes, and that's quite strange because we uh, we might have another place to to talk, so we might guess about that maybe we we have no possibility to talk each, uh, to each other. So you see, it looked like political analysis became based on, on just rumors and some strange uh, things that we had in the time of the Soviet Union when we guessed about the closeness of some uh, members of the Politburo because of the order how they stood in, in, uh, in Mausoleum. Just the same problem. So we just don't know what is the nature of the relationship between Medvedev and Putin. But I have to say that mostly this presumption that Medvedev is more liberal and might be distant from Putin is based on very smart tactics adopted by Medvedev and his advisors. The problem is that many liberal experts in Russia and the journalists and, and um, the columnists and experts, uh, they, they were deprived of access to, to, to the state apparatus, to the ministries for almost 10 years. And for them, of course, it was a big problem. So how to comment, how to, how to write about Russian policy and not to have access to decision makers. And Medvedev, uh, two years ago, he was quite smart to invite these people uh, to some special bodies to prepare for him some reports. And these people were so happy to, for, for, to get this chance to be closer to, to, to the decision makers that they started to promote uh, Medvedev as a kind of uh, more liberal uh, political figure in Russia. Because they thought maybe that, that their reports might influence his, uh, his, his, his behavior, they might push him, as, as happened with Gorbachev 20 years ago, to more liberal direction. In fact, these efforts mostly failed, but, uh, we had, but as a result, we, we got more liberal image from, from Medvedev. Yes. Uh, yes uh, uh, just just wait, for, wait for the mic. My name is uh, Selwyn Seymour. I'm a, I used to study here at the LSE some time ago. Um, my question regards the title of your book, which I find quite interesting. You use the word restoration. Um, which suggests that the security state was in remission or may have gone away for some time. Um, what I wanted to ask you is whether you think it did go away because I don't think anybody in the West thought for any moment that the Soviet state had gone into remission. Um, and particularly I asked the question because of what happened in America this summer. There were uh, about, I think, ten agents who were found to be sleepers in uh, the United States going back to about 20 years ago. So if we deduct 20 years from 2010, we get straight back to about 1990, a time when the Soviet Union was in upheaval yep. and going through a lot of change, but nothing seems to have changed as regard to security apparatus. The problem is that uh, if, <laughs> when we are talking about uh, the FSB, we can't say that, they, that the FSB was reformed and maybe in 
not very, in a very efficient way, but the foreign intelligence, SVR, was never formed. Uh, the foreign intelligence was quite skillful to persuade the Russian leadership that we are very distant from, uh, uh, from the KGB in the time of Soviet Union, so they were the most intelligent people, maybe the most liberal people inside the KGB because they were stationed in the West, they can see uh, Western experience and they brought this experience to Russia. That's why they were never reformed. There was a small and uh, just very, very small reform in, in 1994 uh, when some sections were, uh, some departments were just renamed into section, but that's all. So that's why the foreign intelligence, they managed to keep some traditions, and, they were, were, and the SVR is very proud of traditions of the Soviet Union. And in case of uh, these spies stationed in the United States, they, well, I have to explain to you that mostly they decided to, to keep these tactics because they're still obsessed with the experience of commentary intelligence. Because in the, uh, so the experience of the Sotis, when they enjoyed the, the support of Native American, British, uh, British French, and in Europe and uh, around the world, uh, with, uh, with communist um, communist ideas. And after Sotis, when Stalin clearly just purged all this person, and some of them were killed, some sent to prison, the foreign, the Soviet foreign intelligence, and then Russian foreign intelligence just tried desperately to repeat this success, to have people stationed in the West who might provide some information or who might be influential uh, in terms of something, in terms of crisis, in terms of war. It, of course, it was useless. It never worked even in the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, these people were quite just small, in, most, in, in the best case, we're just small-level businessmen stationed, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, and we had, we had such, such, uh, such experience. But, but, but we, we, never, we, we never were successful to obtain any significant information, even in the time of Soviet Union. So now we have just the same thing. Hello, uh, my name is Marcelli. I'm a student at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Uh, I would like to ask you for a comment um, on the relations between the uh, Russian security services and um, the leading oil and gas companies and about the relationship between the secret services and uh, the organized criminal groups and has there been any change in these two respect uh, in the recent years since Medvedev came to power? Well, it looks like firstly the Kremlin tried to use, for example, Gazprom to deal with the West, with Poland, and to use it as, uh, as a, not just a tool, of, uh, but something more, it's a kind of weapon. But in, in fact, the Gaz Gazprom leadership is not very happy to be, to, just to lose money. And they started to, to say that maybe we can avoid these kind of things. And uh, in case of in, in case of uh, a relationship between specifically Gazprom and the FSB, we can see that sometimes uh, the understanding and the, the approach to, for example, to Poland are, are just uh, the, uh, very, very different. For example, the main question in relationship between Russia and Poland is the question of, uh, of Poles massacred in 1914 in Katyn and the region. And the FSB never tried to, 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 um, 
to facilitate with, with, to, to, to do something with this problem. They tried to, sec uh, to, to make secret uh, the case about, uh, about, about people who, who killed the Poles. And uh, two years ago, uh, the department of the FSB in Tver, they, published, they even published the book about, uh, about the history of their department. And uh, the, the major of the NKVD, who was the chief of his department in, in 40s, and who actually uh, given order to kill these Poles, uh, he was portrayed as a, as a war hero as a guy who was so very successful to hunt down German spies. But you see that when the interest of Gazprom demanded a change of direction and new policy towards Poland, Medvedev and Putin both attended ceremony in Katyn, and I, I think that the FSB people were not, were not very happy with that, but they just complied. So in this case, it looks like Gazprom and all companies, they use FSB, but not FSB use uh, these companies. Andrea? I have a couple of questions I could put perhaps myself. Um, the, the first is, if we look to the North Caucasus nowadays, there has been, uh, it seems, an exponential increase in violent uh, resistance to local authorities and some quite spectacular recent terrorist incidents. The question here is really, although, of course, there are other agencies and structures that are responsible, uh, such as the Ministry of Interior and, and border troops and so forth, Hasn't the failure to be able to control this in some way reflected badly on the FSB and affected, why hasn't it affected in the sense it's standing? Um, it may be that it's inherently difficult to manage, but nonetheless, you know, this is a question about the, uh, the image of, of, of uh, the um, uh, successful uh, uh, control of, you know, it has tasks, it hasn't managed to fulfill all these tasks. Um, the second question is about uh, the, the FSB and the Russian uh, military. Uh, at the moment, Russia is going through an extraordinarily extensive military reform, finally, which means the disbanding of tens of thousands of officers uh, without very secure employment and so forth. Is, is it uh, perhaps seen now as a, a, a more focused uh, concern or role of the FSB to monitor the reaction of that and discontent that there might be amongst this rather influential, well-collected uh, group of professional military um, uh, to avoid um, uh, anything unpleasant politically emerging from that process? Well, uh, if you're talking about the North Caucasus, uh, because uh, we we really have a big crisis of investigative journalism, and now there's very few journalists who cover the North Caucasus. So now it's very easy to, to plan the version favorable for the, for the FSB, what's going on in the North Caucasus. For example, and when the counterterrorism operation in Chechnya was ended in April 2008, uh, 2009, uh, Kadyrov, uh, he was so active to, to, put, to, to, to become the main security guy in, in, in the Republic. And he, he succeeded because he managed to, uh, to appoint uh, the chief of uh, the FSB directorate, and regional directorate in, in Chechnya as the new uh, supervisor of all counterterrorism efforts, in, in not only in Chechnya but in the North Caucasus. And the problem is that the FSB managed to portray this event as, as uh, the revival of control of the FSB of, of the whole situation. And, uh, well, uh, for many just reported it, and uh, for, uh, for, 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 for the population, there is no question about uh, the effectiveness of the FSB. Where they're just happy with, with this version. 
and uh, uh, this year, you know, that the FSB were very active to execute to to kill uh, uh, leaders of of. Uh, of of um, of different Jamaats, not only in Gushetia but um, in in Dagestan, and for and the usual approach and the usual explanation, but why we have at the same time uh, the terrorist attacks and so many killings of uh, of of, uh, of leaders of Jamaats, and, and it looks like these killings have no effect on terrorist attacks. Well, the, the, the answer is, but we we can kill them. We we, we have to kill more and. It, it's just enough. There is no more analysis of what's, what's going on. And another problem is that, that now it looks like Haponian, the new, as you know, the new, uh, the new important person in the North Caucasus who should be, uh, who, who is responsible for, 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 for make this region more peaceful, he was in fact not given any powers to, to, to command the security services and security structures in the region. So he was given only one position and this position was occupied by the former, by low, by low level, not very important person, the former chief of the directorate of the FSB in, in the North City. And it looks like Kadyrov became, and as a result of this reform, Kadyrov became more and more important. Now, for example, we have the tactics used by Kadyrov in Chechnya transferred to Dagestan. You know that now special divisions uh, created, uh, start to be created in, in, in Dagestan and everybody looked to be happy with it. Well, why not to use this experience? And because there is no expert community, almost no expert community in Russia to discuss these issues, so everybody just happy with what, what we have now. Mm-hmm. And the question about... Military and... Uh, yeah, as far, as far as I know, uh, military officers, they tend to be quite passive to create under, um, underground organizations to, uh, to, to uh, I don't know, it's, it's not comparable with Syria, uh, for example, or, or Iraq in the 40s and 50s. And uh, for example, in the time of uh, the crisis of 1991, 1993, we never, s- never seen any kind of, um, of military organizations who really tried to, 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 uh, to carry out coup d'etat, for example. We have only one example of, uh, of, of, of Colonel Kovachkov who tried to, uh, who, sus- who was suspected to try to, 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 to kill Chubais. And this group, as far as we know, w- w- was penetrated by the FSB of, uh, agents. And uh, so it looks like the FSB clearly understood that, understood that uh, there, there might be no threat from, from military. And, mo- and uh, one of the reasons is that if you look how these big, for example, Spetsnaz brigades are disbanded by, 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 new, by, by Russian uh, Defense Minister Sergeyev, you can see that just in the same regions, the new brigades of internal troops are created. So all these people are easily transferred to these new uh, internal troops brigades. So there is no, pl- there is no space for, for complaint. Right, we're drawing close. Um, towards the close of this meeting, but uh, if anyone else has got a yes, okay, behind the podium, I didn't see. Okay, there's a... just that. <laughs> Sorry. Hello. Um, can you hear me? Yes, you can. Right. Uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union, the KGB ideology, was uh, I think the communist uh, ideology, 
as uh, ideology that the KGB members believe in. Now, the the, the current um, uh, Russian Soviet uh, Russian uh, security service. What their ideology is? It the Russian national? Is, is it uh, I don't know uh, the Orthodox uh, Christianity? W what sort of ideology is it? Oh, the problem is that, Thank you. in fact, uh, it's, uh, it's not very correct to think that the KGB officers, even in, this, in the 80s or 70s, were very uh, were real communists. Uh, even then, we, we, we love to talk about patriotism in, uh, in uh, big, big, and, uh, and uh, big Russia, and we love to talk about, for example, uh, about Tsarist Russia, and that they are not only successors of Cheka, but even of Tsarska Akhranka, so the secret police of, of, uh, of Russian Empire. And it was always quite strange to hear these things, was how you might be at the same time the successors of the Cheka, so the revolutionary secret police, and the successors of, uh, of, uh, of Tsarist secret, secret police who, who combated with various uh, revolutionaries. But for them, the answer is very simple. We are just servant of the state. We should uh, defend and to protect uh, the regime in the country. And there is no question about, uh, we, uh, uh, about uh, the nature of this regime. We just need to protect them. And uh, the problem, another problem is that we think that we don't, we don't need to think about the FSB as something united and uh, compact. It's a very big structure. For example, we have central apparatus in Moscow and we have huge regional uh, structure of the FSB. We have regional departments in every Russian city. So these people in regions, they are mostly uh, very provincial in the understanding of what's going on in the country, and they see few foreigners uh, during their career, and in these regions you can see very strange things. For example, if you are talking about generals, they are mostly uh, yes, they are Orthodox, and we love to talk about uh, Orthodox Church and uh, unique uh, way of, the, of Russia. But if we are talking about regional departments, we can see some very strange mystics theories. For example, there is a special concept called deaf water, uh, which is very popular in regions, and specifically in regional branch of the FSB. And the idea of this concept is that Russia was occupied by Jewish uh, Christian um, civilization many years ago, and we need to re uh, resurrect our, our paganism to fight with this, uh, this invasion. And um, there are some lecturers uh, who, um, who give lecture about this concept even in St. Petersburg uh, Department of the FSB. That's why it's a very complicated thing. It, it's not just, uh, it's, we cannot say that this is, a unit, uh, this is an entity of people united by, by one idea. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> there are two or three more people who've caught my eye, and I, I think I have to close the list at this stage, I'm, I'm afraid, um, so that uh, we don't run over with it. Was there one other question there behind the podium? Yes, this is uh, um, my name is Ibrat Safwan from BBC World Service. You um, said that Medvedev um, is supported by the Interior Ministry. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in the Russian media that people, Russian population, is becoming very critical of the police, and um, especially after the Yevsikov shooting in the supermarket and Timovsky's video message. Um, but um, Medvedev is talking about reforms uh, of the police. Do you think, what's the purpose of these reforms? Do you think he's really trying to clean up the image of the police? Well, I think uh, if you look at new law proposed by Medvedev, uh, and 
Well, of course, it's very important that uh, he decided to rename militia into police and the police. But in fact, if you look at the text, you can see that now the officers of, of the Interior Ministry they have no right to complain and they have no right to, to talk to press. So it looks like the first task of his reform is to, uh, to prevent the public to, to get information inside of, uh, of internal ministry, because the problem for Medvedev was that there were so many of his blogs from the internal ministry. They started to, uh, to write blogs, to, to make statements on YouTube, and it was a, uh, a wave of, of, of allegations against uh, the leadership of the internal ministry. So it looks like the main purpose of his reform is just to prevent this flow of information from, from inside. Thank you. Question over there. Yes, you with the bottle. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm a, I'm a student here. Um, let's have one quick question, um, just as we go. Um, are there any questions that you think that we should ask ourselves when we read um, about news coming from Russia, which might help us interpret what's going on there a bit, a bit better? It's a very general question. What was the question? Philosophical. Um, yes. Um, can you think of any questions we should be thinking to help us understand the way Russia's developing better? <laughs> if, if, if you, um, if uh, Andre feels he wish, needs to ponder on that, we might we might come back uh, afterwards if you want to have a word with him. Yeah. Um, it's uh, <coughs> after um, an hour of uh, questions, um, it may be a bit challenging. Um, there's a question at the far back. Um, question, yes, you with glasses. Yeah. I'm John Angus Mackay, I'm a former BBC journalist, now involved in book publishing. To my surprise, if not amazement, I'm left, having heard what you say, with the impression that the FSB is a far less monolithic uh, operation than I'd supposed hitherto, and uh, a much more a contingent set of circumstances. Perhaps we'd ask the question, was the title, The New Nobility, yours or your publisher's? If yours, what do you mean? What does that title signify exactly? If it wasn't your title, what title would you give the book? Uh, I think, uh, to be frank, the FSB uh, might be failed to present new ideas about Russia's present or future, or maybe they, they are not united by one ideology, but what they succeeded to do, uh, they because they are so suspicious, because they have the internal culture of uh, to be suspicious on outsiders, they managed to, 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 to introduce this new suspicious culture uh, to, all state, uh, to, the, to the whole state apparatus of Russia. For example, in the 1990s, when you ask question, uh, well, you might expect that maybe the, the answer would be not very good, but it, but there would, would be an answer. The problem is today that if you now ask the question, the first thing would be, well, who ordered you to ask this question? Who paid you for that? Maybe you are an uh, agent of uh, foreign intelligence or you by some hostile forces or by a corporation. And this is a problem. This is, I think it's a very significant shift. And we have to say that this is mostly because of the influence of these new people in the, in, in the state apparatus. And in this case, I think, well, yes, they are a new, new elite. Because the first time in Russian history, they managed to change political culture. 
Because I, I have to repeat it, that, that the KGB were always subordinate to, to Politburo. They always were just servants of the state. They never tried to, to, to maybe they tried to formulate the point of view of the Kremlin, but they mostly failed. Today, they, they are in different position. Final question here on the, the front row. Yes, lady. Just, just, just the mic, please. I'm Naomi MacDonald, uh, OAP, but politically very active, I hope, <laughs> in thinking. Um, what, what do the ordinary people think of this? You said earlier on that there was not an interest in journalism. Um, can they get anywhere? We don't feel we can get very far, she says. But can they get anywhere? Can they ask any questions? Are there any up-to-date newspapers to read that will tell them what's really going on? Well, uh, first of all, uh, most of the population, first of middle class, they are happy not to answer questions. They are happy that we, it's a kind of deal between the government and the middle class. You might give you your private freedoms to, to go abroad to, 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 to gain money, and um, in exchange you should forget about political freedoms. And for, for the middle class, uh, we are quite happy with, uh, with, with, with this deal. And if you look at... Um, at the circulation of the most important papers in Russia. For example, Commerzant is the most professional paper daily in Russia. We had 100,000 copies in the, 19, in the 1990s, and we still have the same 100,000 copies now. So everybody talked in, in, in 2000 that we have a big, a huge increase of the middle class, specifically in 2000, because of of the old prices of uh, big corporations stationed in Moscow, blah, blah, blah. But it looks like all these new people, they just don't want to read. And they are happy with the version of event presented by state TV. In this case, the FSB became very, and the Kremlin, to be frank, not only the FSB, became very uh, active to present the point of view uh, through the television. For example, we have even Lishna uh, number, it's just one example. For example, after the war in Georgia, uh, the Kremlin produces a special fiction movie about the events, and every year after the crisis, uh, this movie is aired on Russian state TV, and it looks like most of the population just, just, just buy it. Right, well, it's uh, now come to 8 o'clock, so I will need to draw this meeting to a close. I've uh, got several thanks in order. Thanks really to the, the audience yourselves, to uh, coming and putting such an interesting set of questions. Um, but uh, really our main thanks is here to Andre himself um, in uh, addressing your questions in the most dispassionate and frank way. Um, I think really this suggests that investigative journalism in Russia, even if it may uh, be a very difficult profession, uh, is still alive in some parts. There are, st <laughs> there are opportunities to, to write on the most difficult topics, uh, even if with difficulty and under constraints. Uh, and I think that this uh, suggests that some of the, uh, the most uh, alarming uh, predictions about Russia perhaps should be moderated. Um, but So I'd like us to thank Andre very much, and not to forget that uh, Irina, who is here in the front row and who has co-authored the book with, with him, has of course played a large role in, in the um, analysis uh, and, and, and the book itself. So um, just before um, you show your appreciation in a normal way, I'll mention that the, the book uh, will be on sale outside. Uh, Andre uh, 
and perhaps Irina is ready to uh, be there to sign for those who wish to, to purchase it. So, uh, Andre, thank you very much for thank coming. You for